Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia. Hi Carrie. How are you doing? I'm good. How yeah. are you? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Feeling giddy. Feeling giddy. Yeah. That's better than good. You make me giddy. What can I say? <laughs> it's a feeling that is entirely mutual vibes. Great. Well, in honor of our sisterhood. Hey. <laughs> no, she didn't. I actually yes, improvised that. It wasn't even in the script. Um, today, we are talking about brothers. From Cain and Abel to the brothers Karamazov to Fred and George Weasley, the pages of literature have been filled with memorable brothers. Today, we'll be talking about our favorites and why siblings with their love and rivalries remain so evocative in books. As usual, our theme is inspired by our guest, and we're very happy to have Claire Adam with us today. Claire's first novel is Golden Child, a thrilling story set in Trinidad, featuring twin brothers who are very different from each other. Octavia, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about Claire? Of course I do. Claire Adam was born and raised in Trinidad. She read physics at Brown University and later took an MA in creative writing at Goldsmiths, University of London, where she gained a distinction. She lives in London. And yeah, we're super happy that she came in to join us. Yeah. I also love when authors have really short bios. Yeah, it's the best. I think it's, yeah. On says point. something good about them. Definitely. Anyway, and we also have some announcements this month. We do. Don't we? First, thank you so much for all your very generous positive reactions to our first mini-sode. They made us really happy. Um, the next one will be out in two weeks' time, and we're going to be talking about our literary crushes. So if you want to hear about who Carrie and I fancy in the pages of, uh, of literature, then tune in. Um, we'd also really love to hear any literary questions you might have for us, so please do get in touch, litfriction at gmail.com. We want to know what you're thinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Second, oh, it's still me. <laughs> wow. Second, we'll be doing a live show at Jewish Book Week on the evening of the 7th of March at King's Place in King's Cross in London. We're super happy to announce that our guest is going to be Yelena Moscovich, who's the author of two beautiful surreal novels, The Natasha's and Virtuoso, which is the one we're going to be talking about. You can find more details on the Jewish Book Week website or on our socials. We'd really love to see you there. We're going to be there. We're excited. Yelena seems fantastic. So come along. Yeah, please come see us. We're, we love doing live events and we love having an audience for our live <laughs> events. So please come. We love having an audience for our live We need an audience yes, for our please. live events. Um, but getting back to the show today we will talk to claire adam about her novel golden child then more generally about brothers in literature and finally we will give our usual book recommendations so stay with us for the next hour for some brotherly love oh yeah <laughs> so bad i'm so sorry bad. That was, i really phoned that one in claire adam thank you so much for being on literary friction with us we have asked you to start with the reading so could you set it up please mm, sure well thank you so much for having me this is so exciting um, so yes, so I'm reading from Golden Child. This is quite early in the book and this is um, the main character we'll be listening to is Clyde, who's the father of the two boys. And um, this is a Sunday afternoon when his whole family has come over and taken over his house. By five o'clock, the thing is going the same way as usual. When you have men like Ramesh and Philip drinking alcohol from morning till evening, this is how it always ends up, with one set of arguing, always about the same old things. A lot of it comes from Romesh, who is the most drunk of all. It starts when he asks Philip for money to help with some debt he's run up, and then things spiral downhill in the usual way, with Philip saying self-righteously, never a borrower nor a lender be, and Romesh telling Philip to stop being high and mighty and acting like he's better than everybody else, and how he should share what he has with them because they are family. 
Uncle Vishnu, arrived back from the races and sitting with a plate of food balanced on his knees, says how he has already lent Ramesh money once and he is not going to do it again without good reason. And he says nothing else on the subject at all. Then Mousy says that she will lend him what money she can, but she argues with Ramesh about how he doesn't do enough to help, how he only comes when it suits him, how all he does is eat and leave and bring the child Saeed here for her to mind and feed, how Ramesh should do something in return, how he should help out. Take, 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 she says. That is how you are. And Ramesh says, you see, I rather get the money from Republic Bank and pay it back with 15% interest rather than have to listen to you complaining about all the things I don't do. Clyde has been trying to stay out of the whole thing and not say anything at all. But at one point, Ramesh turns to him and says, But Uncle Vishnu has given you money. Why he's given money to you and not to me? That is what I want to know. Uncle Vishnu smiles and shakes his head to himself, and he starts picking up empty paper plates to throw away. You know why, he says. Why are you asking him when I'm right here in front of you? I want to hear it from him, Ramesh says, looking at Clyde. Hello, Uncle Vishnu says. God helps those who help themselves. You refusing to take a good job that somebody is offering you, and instead you want money for free? I already explained this to you. Behave yourself, I will help you gladly. Misbehave yourself, no help. And he takes his stack of paper plates and goes to the kitchen. He is not even a blood relative, Romesh says to Philip. I am a blood relative. I don't understand why he is the favourite. I am the favourite, Clyde says. Uncle Vishnu is just helping out with expenses, seeing as everybody's always coming here to eat, that's all. You all have plenty mouths to feed, you know, and I have the boys now too, that is why. But I have a child too, Romesh says. I don't find that fair. Clyde picks up a few empty carrot bottles and walks out before Ramesh can say anything more. In the kitchen, Joy is scraping leftovers into a pot, the dogs watching from the top step. Move, he tells them, and he pushes his way out and down the steps. He puts the empty bottles into the bottle crate under the steps, and then he takes a deep breath, trying to cool down. It's sunset, the breeze has dropped, and the clouds are very still. Hey, Uncle Vishnu says from the back door. He follows Clyde down the steps. Don't let Ramesh provoke you, you know. Clyde doesn't look at him. He wishes he hadn't had that last carib. He wishes Joy's family wouldn't take over his house every weekend. One day he's provoke you, Uncle Vishnu continues, and the next day he's provoke somebody else. That is how he is. He's not a serious fella. You are a serious fella. You need to focus on your family. Don't bother with people like Ramesh. He pauses for a moment, and then maybe he sees the mood that Clyde is in, because he says, Why are you still mixing that concrete man? You see all the people I know? Why you haven't come to me and asked me to help you get a better job? Boy, I don't know, Clyde says. I'm managing. But he's not managing. Every time Joy's family comes here, they have these same conversations again and again. And every time, the day ends just like this, with him wanting to pour himself a glass of rum, or shouting at Joy, wanting to pick up all these empty car bottles and throw them against the wall. You don't see how many people are offering me favours, Uncle Vishnu is saying. I don't owe them anything, you know. They're trying to thank me for something I did for them. You want a job with Neil and Massey? I could get you the job, you know. 
Just name the place you want to work and I will get the job for you. Anywhere? Anywhere, man. Don't be so shy. You're my family. I will do anything for you. I will move mountains. Where you want to work? Uncle Vishnu is really distressed. He really wants to help. Clyde feels the decision forming itself in his mind, like something with a will of its own that he has no power to stop. Oil and gas, man, Clyde says. Oil and gas, Uncle Vishnu repeats. Thank you for that reading. Oh, it was beautiful and mm -hmm. I think very indicative of a lot of the really complex themes around family in this book, mm. um, how complicated family is. Mm. And uh, you really get that in that scene with the dialogue, especially between the brothers and everything like that. So let, we'll get into that a little bit more later. But first, I just wanted to ask you how this novel took shape. Could you talk a little bit about its construction and yeah, its birth? I'll, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'll try to. It's, it's really hard to talk about it because like for one thing, it was kind of it was quite a while ago and it sort of went through many twists and turns but um but yes I mean it's you know it's it sort of started with this character who I was just reading about so who's the father Clyde and so he sort of came to me fully formed I sort of I had a very clear picture in my mind of um of I suppose what he looked like and how we kind of moved around and I knew he would have these two sons and these two sons would sort of be equal in every way except for one um so I sort of knew that they had to be twins um and they would both be boys and I sort of I knew straight away that he was a Trinidadian man. He, he that was very clear, and um, and I sort of knew the society that he would be living in and the things that he would kind of be up against. Um, and I knew, I mean, I knew the ending. Obviously, I can't talk about the ending, but um, but yeah, I sort of, I knew the end. I knew what was going to happen at the end and and the decisions that he would make. And and I knew he was going to be a tough character to write about. Um, that it would, you know, that my challenge as the writer would be to sort of try and get people to see his point of view and sort of see the society that, you know, I think when you're coming from this sort of very developed country with a lot of support system and you can sort of call 999 at any time for help, you sort of see the world in one way. And I was sort of trying to show the reader this other society where there's very little in the way of a support system and kind of what it's like to be so isolated and unsupported. Yeah, it was really um, amazing to read about Trinidad, actually. I've never been, um, and it's not a, a country I know a huge amount about. So it was this, it gave me a lot of insights and into exactly that, as you say, the completely different way that society is structured over there. Um, and I wondered when you were conjuring it, did you do any extra research or was it all just constructed from your own memories and personal experiences? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so I so I was born in Trinidad and I lived there until I was 18. So that was sort of my, and I'm in my mid-40s now. So I've been outside of Trinidad for like 20 years. So, I mean, I was a little bit worried about kind of getting things right and whether I would sort of misremember things or like the worst case scenario, get something wrong. Like that was something that was really honest. Like the last thing I want to do is get something wrong. You know, and, and it's very easy, I think, for people who've lived abroad to kind of look back on things with this great nostalgia and rose-colored glasses or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I so in terms of research, I mean, I, one thing I did do a lot of was I sort of scoured the Internet sort of looking for photos. I think that was one thing that was very helpful for me, just having the visual reminder of for some reason, particularly the sky. Like I have loads of pictures on my computer of like sunrises and so, which are, of course, are all very beautiful in this tropical <laughs> island. <laughs> but, yeah, so I had a lot of those sort of just the light at different times of day and um and the landscape, the, you know, of course, it is very green, you know, where, so we're very close to the equator. Um, 
you know, the flowers, you know, th- just just reminders of the, the, you know, the the animals you encounter when you wander into the bush and um, the, you know, enormous range of insects. You know, I have a lot of pictures of like insects <laughs> on my computer. <laughs> that makes sense, though, because you do. You get a really strong sense of the of the landscape and the physicality of being in that place as mm-hmm. well, which I think for us reading in like February in England was a, was kind of a wonderful thing to remember what it's like to feel hot. <laughs> mm, I know. I um, know. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it was amazing for that reason. And I just I wonder if there were any um, sort of Trinidadian stereotypes that you also wanted to bust or to avoid? Because as you say, when you're coming from a a more outsider's perspective, it's risky, isn't it, sometimes Mm. to construct a a culture from memory in that way? Yeah, that's a it's a good question. And I mean, there there were several. I mean, so I think like in earlier drafts of this book, for example, you know, so Trinidad is quite a small country, but people who live there were very proud of our country. And, you know, we have a lot of crime and stuff, which is the thing that people might hear about from outside. But we have a lot of good things, too. And so like when I was writing earlier drafts of this novel, I kept on sort of trying to sort of show off these It's like, oh, you look at this great beach and look at this great festival. (laughs) 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 And like, you know, religious harmony and, you know, so many wonderful things. And somebody who read it, they gave me this is when I I did an MA at Goldsmiths and somebody who read a piece, they were like, you know, I I don't know if she intended this as a helpful comment or not, but she said it and she was like, hmm, she said, this sounds like, um, you know, uh, a travel brochure. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And I was, you know, no, I mean, I was, you know, I was really open to all feedback and this was so helpful. And as I say, I don't know whether she intended to be helpful, but I was like, oh, my God, I'm writing a travel brochure. (laughs) So that was, you know, so I was I was like, okay, right. That is that's not what I'm trying to do. So I have to kind of just remind myself, you know, I can't sort of feel a burden of representing all of Trinidad you know I just have to write this one story and whatever comes in comes in and if you know it just it comes out the way it comes out so that was quite freeing for me actually. Well my impression was definitely of a very loving portrait of of Trinidad but one which was very realistic about the violence lurking sort of around Mm. every corner in some ways you know this is a a book punctuated by violence whether it's break-ins or you know, the, the threat of kidnapping. And, and I wonder if that is true to people's experience and mm. if that was difficult for you to write about, especially if it is about a place where you grew up and, mm. and experienced. Yeah, of course. I mean, like, so the violence, like, that was that was tricky to write about. I mean, because I think, again, in earlier drafts, I think sort of, you know, because part of this book is sort of to do with the pressure to leave Trinidad and, you know, to, you know, quote unquote, escape and try and get to a better place or whatever. And I think in earlier drafts, people were sort of saying, oh, well, you know, they would sort of hear about the violence, which is commonplace in Trinidad. And they were like, oh, you know, you, you, what you need to do is sort of represent the violence as like, you know, all consuming and sort of, you know, if, like every day these characters need to be sort of coming up against this violence. And I was like, Yes, but, you know, I, I sort of in earlier drafts, I think I maybe one could say that I maybe overplayed that a little bit. I think that can be quite frustrating to actual Trinidadians because, you know, they they people who are living in Trinidad now, this violence is there, but they continue with their lives day to day. They go to school, they go to work, they go, you know, things function. And yet sort of side by side with that, there is this violence. So it's kind of it it was sort of tricky just sort of finding the right way to represent that because on one hand I don't want to underplay it and you know I mean it it really is there like every day in the newspapers is uh, there's something else and everybody knows someone who's been who's who's sort of been caught up in this kind of in these sorts of experiences that are described in the book everybody knows somebody Mm. and did you want to 
show something about the history of the island as well because for me as a reader that was one of the things I you know I've never been to Trinidad I didn't know that much about it and I was so fascinated to sort of learn about the history obliquely through reading the novel but also I actually went to Wikipedia afterwards and was reading up on the history of Trinidad and for instance um one of the things that I am ashamed that I didn't know is that the majority of the population on the island is Indian because after the abolition of slavery, um, the the British colonizers brought over a lot of Indians to work in this brutal system of indentured servitude. That's right. And you can yeah. feel the echoes of that in this story. So I wonder if, I, I guess that's sort of just life for people who live there, but if that was something you wanted to convey or for some readers like me to to learn more about? Yeah, I mean, that's, um, yeah, the sort of historical aspect is interesting. And like, that's one reason why I didn't, you know, I, I sort of, I tried very hard not to write a novel set in Trinidad because, you know, so growing up in Trinidad, like we have, we learned the, you know, the absolute basics in our history books were like, you know, there was, you know, discovered by Columbus and colonized by blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, African slaves and then indentured labor. And like, we learned that in standard two, and then we move on with our lives. And people really don't sit there studying history or like looking for their ancestry. Like people are just certain for the time that I was growing up there, people are just not interested. It may have changed now. And but only much later did I realize that the reason for that is because because the whole, you know, this is one of the things that comes about with slavery and indentureship is we do not have the records. <laughs> we don't have the records. And then there's also, um, you know, Derek Walcott said, you know, few people can claim to trace their ancestry in the normal, in the usual way. Um, so it kind of leaves us with, you know, live for today. And, you know, you 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 are born on the day you're born and you kind of move forward and, and don't look back. So, um so yes, I'd say during the time that I was growing up, history was not something we were very interested in in Trinidad. So how that relates to the novel is I think like when I was writing, actually, that's one thing I tried. I was like, you know, one way to do this is to go and look up all the history and find out and understand everything. But I kind of felt that would sort of take me outside the sort of mental place of where I, how to explain it? I, f I felt that would take me, that would, in a way, would kind of make me almost like a foreigner. I felt like to stay as a Trinidadian, I needed to stay in that place of not understanding why things were the way they were. So, yeah, I don't think people should sort of feel ashamed if they don't know. I mean, we're a very small country. We don't expect anything. We don't expect people to know about us. We're 1.5 million people. We're very tiny. So don't be embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We don't know either. <laughs> but what was wonderful about the way that you write about family in this it kind of means that the family functions as a microcosm for the nation, which is a fascinating way in because mm -hmm. you have, without revealing too much about the, the plot, all of these different um, connections in the family mm -hmm. and, you know, in-laws and blood relations and uh, different structures of power and different structures mm -hmm. of uh, autonomy and independence. And within that, you know, through that very emotional lens, I think you get a sense of the way a country functions. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a it's a very emotive and um, welcoming way into something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I, I'd love to talk about the two brothers at the heart of the story, Peter and Paul, um, who are twins. And Peter is uh, a genius and Paul, who was born um, after him a little bit, has some difficulties in the birth and, you know, it's, pre it's presented that he has learning difficulties of some kind. Um, and I wonder what what interested you about the contrast in these two boys and what drew you to these characters? Because mm. they're so vivid for mm. me. I feel like they're my friends. I feel very connected to them having read the book. Mm. And I wonder, you know, obviously in the in the narrative, we, we watch them grow a bit. It's not their whole lives, but they grow from children to kind of 
on the cusp of young men, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but what made you, what drew you to that difference in them, that mm-hmm. contrast? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Let me think about that. I think, um, I mean, I guess one thing to say is that like in a place like Trinidad, um, education is very important and being like academically intelligent is like, I mean, I think here in England, I notice I've been here nearly 20 years. I notice it's quite different. Sometimes people who study hard at school, you're kind of um, picked on or something, you know, whereas certainly my experience in Trinidad was the opposite. It's like if you're bright, you just go to the top of everything. People are like, here's the bright person, you know, give them everything. And I think, you know, again, it's something which came about much later. I think, you know, that must come from our history of slavery. It's like the whole way that slaves were able to free themselves was by learning um, and education and and sort of being able to recognize that the oppression was wrong and stand up to the white man, I guess. So it was it was something to do with the importance of like having this re- this very bright person. And then in contrast, you know, somebody born just a few minutes later by this, um, you know, twist of fate being so completely different. So it was something to do with that. And and then I think so Paul, who's the twin who was born born second, who possibly had some difficulties at birth. I mean, I think what interested me about that was, um, I mean, I think it's not clear to the characters whether he has a problem or if so, what his problems are. You know, readers from like England or America might look and say, oh, I, I can see what his problem is or or, or not. Um, but, you know, the, the characters who are there in that moment, they don't have the, the um, resources to to see and to treat or or even know exactly what's going on so it's I think what was interesting to me was that sort of that again that state of not knowing and of people not not um being limited by their being uh, this constraint of not knowing I guess yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's it raises a lot of questions about nature and nurture Mm. and the way that we respond to our children right um yeah I I've love Paul <laughs> I love Paul very much Octavia texted me yesterday being oh. like Paul oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know I know <laughs> so if you read the book everyone Paul your heart Paul will have a very special place in your heart and the wider theme of our show today is is brothers mm-hmm. uh, which is a very important part of this book obviously but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you think the idea of brothers and especially twins is Mm. such an evocative Mm. literary trope Mm. um, and what you wanted to use it for as a novelist Mm. I mean that's interesting I mean it's you know one of the things that people have asked me about is to do with men and masculinity and and it's only after having written this book which is very male and there's two brothers and there's the father and there's the priest and I was like hang on a second I'm I'm a woman (laughs) 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 and I sort of didn't really think about it and I think I mean I guess the reason I chose brothers was a was maybe a more simple reason than maybe I should come up with something more complex but I just felt you know this is an Indian family and I felt like if I was talking about a boy and a girl people would sort of come at it with preconceptions about you know what a boy was worth versus a girl. Yes, it's, I mean, it is interesting. And I think that, um, you know, I mean, certainly I drew on my experience of of being a sibling. And, you know, I came from a very sort of close-knit family and there's sort of themes of loyalty and there's sort of a family duty of, you know, the brothers trying to help each other and there's sort of a limit, you know, how I guess the book might ask, you know, to what extent can we help our family members or our brothers or our sisters? And is there a line where you can no longer help somebody, but you have to look out for yourself only? 
at the center of this novel Mm -hmm. in some ways is also Clyde, who's the father of the boys. And as you said in your introduction, he's a complicated character. He Mm -hmm. makes a lot of decisions that are difficult decisions for the reader to understand. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like the idea of you trying to write your way into Mm -hmm. understanding this character. So I I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about him, what, Mm -hmm. what, how he, how you built him up as a character Mm -hmm. and how you decided to write him and his voice. Mm, yeah, that's that's a good question. I think, um, yes, he was the one who came most easily. And um, I mean, I don't know whether other people do this, but I mean, I wrote a lot. I wrote a lot about him that's, you know, through different drafts, you know, I wrote a lot about his childhood, about the relationship between him and his father. Um, you know, the sort of stuff that happened during the sort of period of the crisis in the novel and, the, you know, a lot of the time sort of leading up to that. Um, and he never, I mean, what was interesting about Clyde was, as I say, this sort of sense of him arriving fully formed. Like there were no huge surprises with Clyde. I was sort of just writing what seemed clear. Um, he was, So he was a very strong voice. You know, there was no sort of telling Clyde what to do. <laughs> Clyde was in charge. <laughs> so, so that was interesting. But I mean, in a way, he sort of like what I had to watch out for with him was him just taking over everything, you know, because he can be a bit overpowering, I think, as we see, as he is sort of with his family. He's kind of like, I am the man of this house. You know, I'm going to tell everybody what to do. And Joy, his wife, she has to sort of, you know, she has to know how to handle him, you know, and she sort of has her domain, which is kind of the domestic sphere. And he's like, I manage everything else. You know, and this again, this is a very, if I may dare to say so, is sort of a Trinidadian man. Things that, you know, this is something that, possibly Trinidadian people will be familiar with, although every man is different. But yeah, so he he was a little bit overpowering, if anything. So I had to, so I knew that there would be Clyde and I knew that there would be, you know, there was Paul who was sort of, he, for a long time, he was sort of quite shadowy and um, I needed to kind of push Clyde out of the way for a while so I could kind of listen to what Paul was trying to say. I love the way that you talk about your characters as people who have their own voice and sort of run away from you and you have to rein them back in in some ways. Uh, Is that how you always think about characters as these Mm. living, breathing things that sometimes you can Mm. take control of and sometimes you can't? I mean, I think these characters were like that. And I I mean, I don't know why that is or if future characters will be. But but I mean, you know, I spent I was about five years writing this book and went through many different sort of versions of it. And I, I lived with it for a long time. And if you read the book, you'll see it's quite sort of intense and painful in places. And, you know, as a writer, you kind of have to go there, I think. And like, if you have if you want to have any hope of it feeling real for the reader, you have it has to feel real to you, I think. Yes. And it's a, I mean, you know, this story, it's not like it's it's personal to me in the sense that my family has experienced this, but it's you know, I mean, it's a very real story. I think that, um, you know, there are many people, not just in Trinidad, but it's a, it's a story of, you know, I think people in many different countries will kind of know something of what it means to, to struggle in the way that these characters struggle and to, you know, to sort of be so alone and sort of unsupported and have no backup and like the sort of threat, the sense of threat coming from a community that you thought you could trust. Did you find it? Um, helpful introducing Father Kavanagh, who you mentioned earlier, who's this Irish Catholic priest who comes to the island to teach in the school where the boys um, are being educated, because um, he's such an outsider. And I wonder if that was something that was helpful in drawing the characters out 
for the reader mm. or how you felt about writing him because mm. he's he's in such stark contrast mm. to everybody else in the novel mm. rightly so but you know I wonder if you could talk about mm. that experience yes I mean so I kind of you know this is one of these straight it's these things that you just have to wrestle with it's like I sort of knew he was going to be there but I didn't quite know how and I, I mean again you know what I was just listening to your podcast from Otessa Moshfeg and she was sort of talking about writing hundreds of pages in the wrong direction. And I feel like I probably did that as well with Father Kavanagh that I wrote. I wrote, I know all about this character. <laughs> I know all about where he grew up and I know all about like he's this character is afraid of water and I know all about why, he's, you know, so I know a lot about him. And to be honest, he was very inconvenient because I sort of felt like, <laughs> I was like why I is that. he here? <laughs> And I was like, I, you know, I really sort of struggled with sort of trying to figure out whether he belonged there at all. Was he sort of, you know, in earlier drafts, I thought, is he here? Does he think he is telling this story? Is he here to save everybody to sort of swoop in with his cape? You know, um, so I, I did sort of struggle to figure out where his place was. And yet I just felt that this, this character belonged there. I felt he has a part to play. And I was sort of trying to figure out what it was. Um, but yes, I felt he had a part to play. So he stayed in. A number of reviewers have described this as a page turning novel or, you know, Mm. having a really pacey plot. And Mm. I wonder how you think about pace as a writer. I'm always interested in this. Mm. Is it something that just emerges from the story? Is it Mm. something you really had to work on? And Mm. if you had to work on it, how did you work on Mm. it? Yes, yes. Good questions. (laughs) (laughs) These are good, (laughs) good writerly questions. I mean, I think... um, Yes, pace is something I've I've seen people have commented on. And I think that, you know, there's some places in the novel where things kind of go slowly and other places where things go quite fast. And I mean, I, I don't know whether I got it right or wrong. It's up to the reader to sort of say. But um, but yes, I did. I mean, it's certainly as, as the writer, it's something that was on my mind a lot. It's sort of because, time, you know, time is passing and you're thinking, OK, how how quickly is time passing? And, you know, you have to choose which points do you, in, you know, you in, include a moment where somebody comes home. The first chapter opens with Clyde, the father. He comes home and he he walks down to the gates and, you know, he sees a bird and he looks over his shoulder. So, you know, time is sort of moving at a particular rate there. And then and then you sort of gloss over certain moments and you, you sort of pick something else where there's some sort of turning point and something happens. So I guess maybe what I can conclude from that is that the pace sort of depends on how, how closely together the turning points are. And I think in there are some sections of the book where I think the sections people are referring to when they say it's kind of a page-turning thriller, that um, every moment counts, and so you know that's that's why it comes across that way. But it wasn't it wasn't like I was trying to write a thriller. It was just like there were some situations where um, things could have at every moment things could have changed and have gone a different way. Mm-hmm. I like thinking about it that way. Mm. Um, finally, I just wanted to ask you because you you mentioned that you did a creative writing degree at Goldsmiths mm. and also that you did a physics degree. Oh, so yeah, you, yeah, have, yeah. <laughs> you have done these incredibly yeah. different degrees. Yeah, um, yeah. And are there things that you've learned from both? Yeah. Uh, do you feel both of those educational experiences in this novel? Well, a little bit. I mean, so I did physics and I think this one of the characters does physics and math. So that was I was like, oh, yeah, what what book shall he pull out? I'm like, oh, electricity and electromagnetism. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> and then Clyde opens the book and it's like, what is he saying? I'm like, he sees upside down triangles of <laughs> div, grad and curl, you know. So the, so I mean, that was I suppose that was the only input that the physics had to this book. But, but yeah, I mean, so I did physics. I mean, I loved physics at, at college, um, you know. 
I guess I came from a fairly sciencey family, so there was always maybe a little bit of an expectation that I would go and do science. But I did it because I wanted to do it. And I kind of gave it up just because I wasn't good enough. <laughs> so like with physics, I was in the US. And I mean, um, so I was on a Trinidadian visa. And um, like the only way for me to stay in the US would have been to go on to do a physics PhD. And I was like, man, that's too hard. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> but you like you have to be so good. And I was like, look, I just, you know, I mean, I enjoyed my physics. I did OK. But I was like, look, let's be realistic. I'm just not good enough to go and really you know and, and also with the, you know you, you to do physics I don't know if you guys have done science but like you know you you think you're going to do these grand things and unlock the secrets of the universe but actually you're working on something extremely tiny about you know to do with you know something the size of 10 to the minus 12 grams or you know meters or whatever and you know I was in my 20s I was like man I'm not doing this <laughs> <laughs> So I kind of left and, you know, I'd always sort of, you know, I'd always enjoyed reading and I'd always kind of had this thought in the back of my mind, oh, maybe writing. And, you know, so I eventually found my way to it, got there in the end. (laughs) Great. Um, Well, Claire Adam, it's been a delight to have you on. Thank you so much. And uh, the novel is called Golden Child. It is out in all bookshops. So please check it out. Oh, thank you so much for having me, guys. You've been so much fun. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is Brothers in Literature. Yes, it is. Yeah. So I thought we should start by talking about siblings in literature more generally and why so many authors have written about siblings and what they can mean in literature as well. So why don't I kick us off by saying that there is a reason why there are so many books about families, and it's because families are complicated. Families are the people that we sometimes are not very much like, but have to spend a lot of time with and love. And also siblings in particular are the people who are there for our most formative moments, who we are thrust together with, who know us intimately, but also may be the kind of people who we wouldn't necessarily choose to spend our time with. That's not a dig at you, Sophie. I love you very much. (laughs) You're my good friend. My sister listens to this podcast. And I love her. (laughs) And she's sharpening her knife. Yeah, she's listening. (laughs) No, I feel very lucky to... Sorry, we don't have to talk about my family history. I love you, Sophie. Okay. What else do you think, Octavia? About sisters? It's interesting because I was brought up as an only child. So um, for me, my siblings or the sibling-like relationships I have in my life are all uh, kind of chosen. Um, and and come from friendships. So when I read about siblings, it's it's amazing, and I find it fascinating and sometimes quite sad because I, it's an experience that I can quite often wish that I had. Um, and then other books you read about siblings, where I'm like, thank fucking god, <laughs> I didn't have to deal with that. So it's a complicated thing. But also, as you say, fa- family narratives. They're always going to draw us in because regardless of what your family structure is, whether it is one that stayed together or broke apart, whether there were seven of you or one of you, it's it's the founding narrative for all of us in our lives. It's something that you're either always acting for or against. You can't escape it. You, it's, it's fundamental to everybody. And um, the thing about siblings 
is that it's yeah it, you create this space of people who have should have the same experience and don't and so it's a wonderful literary trope for giving you um, dissenting opinions mm-hmm. from the same sort of grounding. Um, when I was doing research for the show, I f- uh, found a quote from um, a writer called Elisa Albert, who wrote an introduction to a collection of essays called Freud's Blind Spot, which is all about siblings. I haven't read the collection, but it sounds actually completely fascinating. 33 essays about siblings, which for a lonely only like me um, would be quite an interesting read. But the, the quote from the introduction, she describes siblings as blood peers from whom we can't ever quite escape. And I think that nails it really, that mm. the, it's this peer, this experience of being peers um, and being parallels and the things about that that can be complicated, right? Like it, it opens a space for competition, for like, but not a likeness. Um, and as you said, you know, love, but maybe not like, mm. you know, you can love your sibling and cherish them, but think that they're a pain in the ass. Um, so it yeah. creates an interesting dynamic. Totally. And also an allegory for different ways of being in the world. Mm. So um, I think the Brothers Karamazov, which I instantly thought of when we yeah. were doing the show, partially because it has brothers in the title. But <laughs> but Dostoevsky uses the three different brothers in that book to show how different personalities can grow out of the same circumstances, but also how really they become types for the way that we interact with the world and the way that we choose to live our lives. And a lot of other books that have prominently featured siblings have done the same thing yeah and the thing about brothers in particular as Claire said in in the interview if you want to take a more neutral position because of the way the world is structured in in heteropatriarchal terms you're still going to choose the masculine position if you want to be neutral if you're going to write about sisters you you have to take into account a huge amount of political dynamic around them which if you want to write a straight story about archetypes it kind of will cons- will confuse that goal. And I think that's the thing with The Brothers Karamazov, which is such a deeply philosophical and cerebral book in many ways, is that it, you know, also taking into account the time it was written, of course, when Dostoevsky was working. But because um, they're the three boys and they're responding to essentially their bad daddy, like their daddy's a fucking nasty man, um, it allows for them to be tropes of, as you say, philosophical positions you can take on the world. So one is a sensualist, one is a rationalist, and one is a kind of uh, faith. He's a priest, so he represents faith. Whereas if you cast those in the feminine sphere, you'd be getting a lot of, you'd have to take into account a lot of very conflicting messages around those positions, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And it's true that the stories that seem the most allegorical when I'm thinking about famous stories about siblings often feature brothers rather than sisters. So, you know, there's Cain and Abel, there's East of Eden by John Steinbeck, which is inspired by by Cain and Abel. Um, I thought of Biff and Happy and Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller, which are the two brothers who are rivalrous in the sort of most um, essentialist sense. Well, actually, also when you when you mention rivalry, that's one of the things that is so firmly located in the masculine sphere as well, in terms of, you know, needing to find narratives about dominance and about independence. Again, writing from this fe- feminine sphere about that comes with a lot of political um, legwork that you have to do to stride over those things. Whereas when you're in the masculine sphere, because as you say of Cain and Abel, you have this immediate reference point, which is about the struggle for masculine dominance over the other masculine elements, um, which is still something that's very gendered, I think. Yeah, definitely. And one of the nice things about Golden Child, I thought, was that 
Claire Adams subverts that a bit. She makes these brothers two boys who really love each other and want to support each other, um, despite what the, their family and society is telling them. And I do think, I, I wouldn't want to say that all novels about sisters are about harmonies and, um, you know, there, know. Are pl- <laughs> there are plenty of rivalrous sister novels, but maybe they tend to be a little bit more complicated. And, and interestingly, when I was thinking about this theme, there are there do seem to be more famous novels featuring sisters um, than brothers. And, you know, I it's it was so easy to think of groups of sisters. So Little Women, Pride and Prejudice, uh, Little House on the Prairie, Virgin Suicides, Poisonwood Bible, Fiddler on the Roof, just to throw in a musical. <laughs> Tevye famously, famously at the very beginning goes, I have five daughters. <laughs> um, but I wonder why that is. Well, I have some thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, novels con- novels were always considered the realm of women. And a lot of the books that you just listed off have written quite a long time ago. Um, but also... Masculine narratives are so often about men striking out from the domestic sphere and conquering land and conquering space um, and forging a very independent, separate identity. So it's hard to keep a group of brothers together in that way if you're going to go along traditional lines. Whereas for women, historically being in the sphere of the home and also not having access to that level of independence, usually that level of structural political independence or politically supported independence it's much easier and less artificial to keep them trapped in a in a locale whether that's a home or just a particular community um and also because because of the way heteropatriarchal structures oppress women women have to have a much more symbiotic relationship with one another under those structures so if you have a group of sisters you have the immediate tension of they need each other but they also need to supersede each other, Mm. which creates a particular energy. Whereas with brothers, that's not always the case. The traditional narrative is one needs to conquer the other in order to carry on the paternal lineage. Um, And we still haven't escaped that drive in, you know, when you're looking at familial connections, the question of legacy is still so, so powerful. And I think if you're writing in a sphere of women, or in queer identities is much easier to let go of that because there is a natural tendency towards a cutting off from in order to find uh, a like fulsome independent voice whereas when you're in the masculine sphere it's still it's still very directional do you know what I mean mm-hmm. I feel like mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm not using examples so it's maybe a little harder to grasp but there's something in that for me that there's that momentum of like paternal desire and then the question of do you do you take that on or do you let it go but that's sort of it. I mean, what you said about brothers who love each other and help each other in, in Golden Child is really interesting because I couldn't think of many novels about harmonious brothers. Well, there's Fred and George Weasley, yes, as yes. you said in the introduction. That is, a great, that is a great example of two brothers who really love each other. Yeah, but then they also have their older brother, Percy, who they do not love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there you go. There's a family where there's a lot of brothers. It's heavy. It's more brothers than sisters. There's yeah, only one sister, isn't there? I mean, that raises another question, which is, you know, what about sibling relationships that work across gender boundaries? Um, and that introduces a whole other dynamic. Yeah, that maybe we should talk about in, a, another, in another show. show. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I did, um, just to end this discussion, I did want to get back to your point about 
siblings being a relationship that happens within the domestic sphere, which is maybe why it's easier to write about sisters, but it's also maybe why siblings are a much more important part of children's and YA books. And there's a great essay in Lit Hub by the author Catherine Noel, who argues that siblings are just much more prominent in children's and YA books than they are in adult literature. And I think that's probably true. And once you start thinking about it, you think, okay, Swallows and Amazons, Harry Potter, the Bobsy twins, oh, man, Narnia. Uh, the boxcar children. Yeah, Narnia. Siblings are such an essential part the of the stories. Children. Yeah, yeah. Um, A Wrinkle in Time, the, yeah. you know, all of those stories. It's, it's really, a, they're, they're about sibling relationships. Mm. The five children in it, um, yeah. Enid Blyton, you know, all of them. Yeah. Because that's who you're proximate with. Mm. But also, I imagine it's also a writerly economy (laughs) because you don't have to describe the origin stories of every single character because the origin story is the same. Mm. Yeah, It's harder. you're You're set a more complex task in some structural ways if you're trying to write about a group of five friends who all have their different origin stories than if you're writing about five siblings. You know, yeah, as a thought. That's yeah, depressing <laughs> answer to that <laughs> a question. Boring structural thought no. <laughs> for me. It's probably right to some extent. Okay, well, let's talk about our favorite brothers in literature. Yeah, definitely. Shall I start? Yes. Okay, so mine, well, I don't know if these are my favorite brothers, but they were the ones that haunted my thinking from the moment we discovered that this was the theme we were going to do. And they're Majid and Milat from Zadie Smith's White Teeth, um, which is a book that has stuck with me in many different ways and through the eyes of many of its different characters. But these brothers really, they just, they stood out, um, especially because like Peter and Paul in Claire's book, Golden Child, they're also twins, but here they're identical. And actually the the narrative that surrounds them is kind of the inverse of of what Claire describes. Um, So they feel like a very interesting point of comparison. So anyone, when you read Golden Child, like hold Majid and Miller in your mind at the same time, and it it throws some interesting lights on things. Um, Both sets of brothers are characters who are profoundly shaped by their familiar expectations um but smith explores yeah very much the inverse of what's drawn in claire's novel because majid and miller are separated when they're 10 years old their father sends majid who he considers to be the better son back to bangladesh um in order to be a good muslim boy while miller stays in london and in his absence, Majid becomes this golden child carrying the weight of all of his paternal expectations. Um, and obviously the the kind of balance of that is that Milak can only disappoint. And um, he gets into girls, he gets into booze, he gets into all the stuff that his father feared for him um, as a Muslim boy growing up in London. But when Majid returns, Smith twists this classic prodigal son narrative on its head and it becomes this incredibly poignant meditation on autonomy and identity and self-determination and really the incredibly dangerous role of parental desire in shaping one's character and the fact that that desire to be in control of what happens to your children and your progeny can end up having completely inverse results and actually of course what you should do is allow your children to become whoever they are um, and their characters are really free from your you know you're there to offer them security and safety and guidance and then that's it and I think that both of these novels both White Teeth and Golden Child really um, interrogate this question of parental desire being something that comes from a loving place but often gets completely distorted um, and is never separate from the parent's ego yeah totally and it's impossible to talk about siblings without talking about parents yeah you can't exactly you really can't yeah and I love White Teeth, as you know. Oh, so such I agree. a good book. 
So one of the best portraits of brothers, I think, is the one in William Faulkner's 1929 novel, The Sound and the Fury. It is a novel that focuses on the formerly aristocratic Compson family of Jefferson, Mississippi, which is where a lot of his novels take place, um, who sort of over the course of the novel fall on harder and harder times. Um, there are three brothers in the family, Benji, Quentin, and Jason, and also their sister, Caddy, who interestingly never actually has a voice of her own in the novel. Hey, um, hey. Yeah, but... Classic. Well, I think there are reasons for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there yeah, are. Um, which are more complicated than women not having a voice. Yeah. But anyway, and they narrate different sections of the novel in, in, the different, nar- in different narrative styles that are reflective of their inner worlds. Um, so it's just, in terms of writing it's just an amazing feat of fitting a style to a character and stream of consciousness it becomes a way of exploring how different personalities arise from the same circumstances and and really thinks about different ways of being in the world it's also a really really difficult book to read sort of notoriously difficult partially because it starts um, from the perspective of Benji who has some learning disabilities and so his thoughts are quite um mixed up sometimes in a way that's really hard to follow narratively. But I would say it's a really, really rewarding book to read if you struggle through it. Um, And I am really glad to have read it. It's one of those ones that comes up again and again and again in so many different contexts. He's an extraordinary writer, Faulkner. Yeah. Really extraordinary. One of the ones from history that's worth digging up. (laughs) Yeah. Although, I mean, politically not. No. You know, there are so many problems with this novel and every single one of his novels. But but a really complicated look at the fall of the White South, I think all of his novels are, um, that are not easy to dismiss 100%. Yeah. Good point. Well made, Carrie Pitt. Plitt back here with Octavia Bright and also Claire Adam to give our book recommendations this month. So Octavia, would you like to start? Yes, I'm really, I'm really excited to recommend what I'm talking about today, which is a book called Her Body and Other Parties, which is a collection of short stories by Carmen Maria Machado. And it, it pretty much set my brain on fire. It's absolutely exquisite. She's one of the most exciting original voices I've read in ages and um, a totally fearless feeling writer. She reaches across genre she reaches across voice across sexual identity but it it's I I kind of it's almost hard to talk about it because I'm still so in awe of her mind um so the stories are all very different from one another in the way that they're structured in in everything but the voice is so unifying that you you really feel like you're in this woman's consciousness and you're exploring every possible corner of it and she's totally willing to let you go everywhere there's kind of a free pass basically but if that sounds frighteningly unruly it isn't she's very controlled and deliberate and careful with you but you're taken on this extraordinary journey and as our listeners and Carrie know like I really hate genre definitions I I feel like restriction is terrible and um, however someone made the point to me recently that real creativity can only flourish within structural boundaries right because you have to cross them so I'm starting to think about things a little differently about that but that's the thing that she does so brilliantly is this feeling of boundlessness 
but actually you're in such safe hands from the very beginning. She's so confident and she packs so much in. Each one is really rich and really satisfying. Um, and they're very political, they're very physical, they're very grounded in sensorial experiences of the world, but they're also talking about the apocalypse and uh, you know, they kind of wander into sci-fi territory, but they stay incredibly emotional. I don't know. I kind of, wow. <laughs> I'm like rolling on one because I love her so much. Sounds um, amazing. Yeah, they're, they're, they are they are amazing, amazing stories. And one of the things she does that excited me the most, actually, is she jumps out of the page. She addresses you directly as the reader. She also addresses the fact that you might be reading one of the stories out loud and tells you how to do it mm. and what sounds to make or what sensations to replicate in your body. And I think that's so rare where a, a writerly voice acknowledges your body in the mm. experience as the reader as well mm. and acknowledges the fact that there's this contract between you and the work mm. that exists physically as well as cerebrally. Um, so that, yeah, it just really excited me. Every time I finish one of the stories, I read it again straight away, which I don't think I've ever done with short stories and I'm saving the last two I don't want to I don't want to end I don't want to relinquish it I don't think I've ever heard you as enthusiastic about one of your recommendations yeah it's I think I have to read you this. do it's blown me away I've actually bought a few copies to press them <gasps> sweatily into the hands of everyone I know so I'll give you one awesome. sounds great yeah. what's her name again Carmen Maria Machado okay okay I yeah, know the name yeah. she's mm -hmm. it's honestly I uh, whether you're a writer or a reader or neither uh, you know it's it, it, it's just She's a very unique person, I think, a very unique mind. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've heard great things about that collection, but maybe this is what I need to push me over the edge. <laughs> you can always trust me to push you over yeah. the edge, basically. <laughs> Clara, may we have oh, your recommendation, Yes, sure, please? yes, of course. So I'm choosing, this is a book which is recently released, and it's, um, so it's published by People Tree Press. People is P-E-E-P-A-L, People Tree Press, which is a small press um, based in Leeds. And um, and they publish um, writers from the Caribbean um, and often, and, you know, I think small presses are this is sort of a shout out for small presses, first of all, because, you know, I'm published by Faber, which <laughs> I've got my publicist here next to me. And like, Faber is fantastic. But, you know, not everybody can, you know, that that has sort of come about partly because I've been I left Trinidad and I've been living in the UK. Um, but for people who are in the Caribbean writing, it can be harder for them to to sort of get access to these fantastic, you know, mainstream publishers. And so a lot of people, um, the, the outlet that they start with is is the place like um, People Tree Press. And so this is an anthology of short stories that has just come out. Um, and so this is a wonderful place where people can go if you're sort of slight, you know, a bit interested in the Caribbean and you think, oh, you know, I'd like to read a little bit more and find out about people who are living in the Caribbean today and writing. Actually, not all the writers are based in the Caribbean. This is also people who are, you know, like me, based in England or Canada or the US or, or uh, wherever. Um, but I mean, to be honest, like when I was, sorry, this is turning out to be all about me and not so much about the book, but I'll keep going. <laughs> um, but, you know, when I was writing my book, one thing I I did was I stayed away from reading other Caribbean writers because I just didn't want anybody else's voices in my head. I didn't want anybody to sort of influence me and to say, oh, this was my experience and you should sort of reflect. I was, I just sort of wanted to stay with, with, um, you know, what, what was, I just wanted to stay with my own thoughts and, and kind of preserve the integrity of my own experience. But so since I finished that, now I'm looking at other Caribbean writers. And I mean, the stories are fantastic. And I think as well, like for people who say, you, say you've listened to this podcast and say you've already read my book and say you're shocked by some of the things <laughs> that you found in my book, then you should read this collection. <laughs> and you should, I mean, I think that reading this collection will show people, you know, it's sort of another data point for people to look at and see like, um, 
you know, place um, life in other places is not the same as life in sort of, let's say, England or America. You know, people are struggling with very different things to what people are struggling with here. And, you know, people from my book have sort of talked about, you know, masculinity and violence. And I think... Um, I think that, you know, the stories, I think, in this collection really make no apologies for the things like the depiction of violence and the portraits of masculinity that you'll find there. Um, So, yes, I've been, you know, two that I've been reading just now. There's one by Rhoda Barrett, which is called Redemption, which is about um, a man who visits prostitutes and has a heart attack while visiting one of the prostitutes. And it's sort of how the village responds to that. And, you know, it's um, there's you might say that there's an element of humor in it. and you might say that there's an element of judgment and um, there's certainly a lot to do with what men are allowed to get away with in societies like ours. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad you recommended it, especially a, a book people might not as easily come across in a bookshop. So my recommendation this month is an essay collection called Notes to Self by Emily Pine. Um, Pine is an Irish academic. This collection was a huge sort of surprising success I think in Ireland last year um, it was on the bestseller list and things like that which is very surprising for an essay a, a sort of debut essay collection but um, it was published in Ireland speaking of cool independent presses by this really cool independent press called Tramp Press which have amazing books I would really recommend checking out the things they publish um, because they it's these two women who just have amazing taste and consistently publish great things but it was picked up by Hamish Hamilton here in the UK published last month um, which was why I got my hands on it and I can really see why it's won so much praise she's she's a great essayist she's wonderfully direct she's thoughtful she's incisive um, she's personal she's frank and it's a very frank examination of what it means to be a woman in the world I don't think it's saying anything new it's not revelatory in terms of the theme she's talking about Um, she talks a lot about women's body. She talks about taking care of her alcoholic father and what that experience was like like for her. She talks about being a young person and really putting herself and her body in danger in a way that now when she looks back on it is trying to make sense of it and reflect on it. And what I felt about it and why I thought it stood above a lot of other essays in the age of the personal essay was that every essay took me to a place that I didn't quite expect. And the collection took me to a place that I didn't quite expect. And that's what I'm always looking for. And so I'm really glad that I read it and and I would really recommend it. I've been really, I've got it at home and I'm looking forward to getting into it. She sounds, yeah, she sounds like an interesting woman. Yeah, she is. She's a really interesting woman. Um, you, you finish it and you think, I'm glad I spent time in this brain. Mm, that's the best. Yeah. Mm. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Claire Adam, Rory Bowens at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us via email, litfriction at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with our second ever mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>